Turn with me in your Bibles today to the book of Romans, chapter 11 and verse 36. This message will be the fourth in the series of messages entitled, The Whole Counsel of God, will be the second in that series dealing with the subject of the chief end of man, or the major reason why man is to exist. Last week, or the week before, rather, in our last assembly, which we spoke to you on this theme, we dealt with the first message on the subject of what is the chief end of man. And we found out that man's chief or major reason for existing is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And whatever a man's to do, whether whatever he eats, drinks, or whatever he does, he's to do all to the glory of God. And then connected with that, he is to enjoy his God. Because as we're going to see in today's message, these two stand together. A person cannot glorify God without enjoying God, and he cannot enjoy the true God of the Bible without giving him the glory that is due unto his name. We saw in the previous message that if there is a major end for our existence, that whatever we do we're to do all to the glory of God, then there is also a minor end. And the minor end of our existence is found in the Genesis account of creation, the first chapter in verse 26, in which that God gave man the dominion over the affairs of this physical life. And man is to use his life and to govern his life for the glory of God and in return find self-contentment and self-satisfaction in this world. But never is he to allow the temporal affairs of this life to become the major reason why he's here. This was the major objection that Jesus had against the religious leaders of his day when he would say, you're majoring on the minor things and you're minoring on the one major thing. You've omitted the more weightier matters of the law. And so that God has given us this morning, he's given many of us families, he's given us homes, he's given us food, he's given us occupations. And all of these in themselves are lawful things for us to use. But it's possible to turn those lawful things into sinful things and forget about glorifying God and making these things the major reason for our happiness and our existence. And when we do that, anything that we make that becomes an idol. Even our wife, even our children, even our job, even our church can become an idol if we begin to use it and make it the major thing for why we are existing. Now we want to continue then with the theme, not just the glorifying of God, but the second part of our answer, and that is the enjoyment of God. How can we enjoy God? And reading from Romans chapter 11 and verse 36, why should the glory and the enjoyment of God be our chief or major reason for living? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Here is a text of scripture which sort of acts as an umbrella 
under which all of the affairs of the creation are placed. We read, first of all, that of God, out of the very character and being of God, all things have been spoken into existence. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and that there was nothing that existed prior to that time but the eternal Godhead itself. And that out of that Godhead and by a divine fiat or command came forth all of the planets, all of the innate matter, all of the living matters in the realm of plants and animals and spiritual beings, and then man himself. So that everything which exists owes its existence to the fact that a creator brought it into existence. That's where we came from. Then we read secondly in our text, and through him. Not only has the divine creator brought all things into existence, but he sustains all things in the orbits of their existence. He not only keeps the planets in their circles, he also has decreed with such unchangeable and powerful laws that nothing in the universe gets out of the circuit but what he has ordained for it to rotate in. So that he has decreed that he shall not only create all things, but he shall rule over and sustain all things. It is the time to be born, as I read yesterday at the funeral of a very dear friend. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And when God decrees that that little one shall come forth out of the mother's womb, it shall come forth. And when God decrees that that person breathe their last breath, that person will breathe their last breath. He not only creates all things, he sustains all things, and they exist to the length of time in which that he is pleased to allow them to do so. So of him and through him. Of him answers the question, where did we come from? Through him will help answer the question, why am I here? And then the third thing, and to him are all things. No, beloved, God did not get lonely one day and create you and me for companionship. In spite of all the modern theology and all the books which try to explain the existence of God and why we're here, God did not get lonely and cry out for companionship and say, Oh, I need somebody to talk to. No, God created all things for himself, but God was perfectly happy before there was ever a world. And if there had never been a world, there would have been nothing which would have interfered with the perfect happiness of God in that great mystery of the Godhead. But he created the animals, he created the plants, he created all of the material and spiritual things in this world, and he created you and me for his own end purpose to glorify him. He did not create us for the major reason for us to be happy. And any person that tries to go through life trying to live for the central feature of happiness is not going to find it. God did not make you just so you can have a life of happiness. 
He made you to glorify him. And whatever he has decreed that is to come into your life, you are to find your joy in those happenings which he has ordained for you. And whether that he gives you a life in which that it is a life of peace and relatively free from external pressures, or whether that it is a life which characterized that of Job, then you must learn to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So of him, through him, and to him are all things. God has created all things for his own glory, for he alone is worthy of that. There's no greater honor of anything in the universe than God himself. So everything which exists in the universe is to exist for the glory of God. Now, why are the glorifying and the enjoying of God connected together as making up our chief or major end? Because no man can glorify God who does not enjoy God. And no man can enjoy God who does not set out to glorify God. We are creatures of habit. We are creatures of instinct. We do what we enjoy doing. And we will take the course in which that we find gives us the greatest delight. And no man can glorify God who will not enjoy God. You just won't do what you don't enjoy doing. And no man can enjoy God who does not, first of all, give him the glory that's due unto his name. This is why that to so many individuals outside of the realm of the Christian faith and those inside the realm of the Christian faith, I speak in general terms now, why that they have no or little enjoyment of the things of God, because they are not worshiping the God who alone is glorious, who is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And therefore, their worship or their service of God becomes a burden to them. And they cannot enjoy God because they are not willing to bow and say, Lord, whatever you ask, whoever you are, whatever reason you want it for, I will give you the honor and the glory that's due unto your name. And if a person is not willing to do that, they can enjoy living in the presence of that God. And thus they'll make a God out of them own, their own selves. And this is essentially what Americans have done in our culture today. If you go out into the masses and take the Gallup polls, you'll find that the American people are the most religious people at this present moment on the face of the earth. But if you go out with an open Bible and begin to examine that religion, you'll find there's very little true Christianity existing in our land. Very little true Christianity existing in our land. And when you begin to try to ask, well, what kind, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Well, fine, tell me something about this God. Well, this and the hymn hall around, and they might believe in a divine being of some nature. But you watch them and they begin to express their projection of God, and it's nothing more but a projection of what they would be if they were God. 
You find the man who lives in fornication and adultery, and he wants to live at peace in that lifestyle, so he conjures up him a God who will approve of that. And then his God just becomes a projection of what he'd like to be. You find a man that likes to travel and likes to go everywhere and doesn't want to settle down and work, and he'll project the image of a God that God's just a big roaming nomad. And he just travels everywhere. And thus, whatever a person likes for themselves, then they project an image outward, and that becomes their God, and they call that the God of the Bible, and they can enjoy getting along with a God like that, because it's nothing more but a God made in their own image and in their own likeness. But when you bring them face to face with the holy God of heaven who created all things and they are a servant of that God, suddenly they begin to get uneasy in the presence of that God. And they can't enjoy that God because they won't give glory unto another. They want self-glory. They want to make up their own laws, their own rules, their own guidelines. So no man can glorify God who does not enjoy God And no man can enjoy God who does not set out to give him the glory due unto his name. Now, what does the enjoyment of God consist of? How do you know whether that you are enjoying God? The enjoyment of God consists of a hungering desire to be conformed to God's likeness. We have certain people we like to be in their presence. And as we're in their presence, the longer we're in them, the more we become like them. (laughs) I find this uh, quite humorous in my own lifestyle with my reading uh, of certain books. You see, nearly every minister has a peculiar delivery or writing style. And if you happen to listen to a minister on his tapes for maybe three weeks, you find you pick up his phrases and you find that you pick up his words and you go and preach that and listen to the message and you say, my, I'm just a little image of brother so-and-so because that's who you've been studying under for so long a period of time. Or you read a, a writer for so long and then you start writing and you find out you're using the same phrases that he is using. So we, as we're in the presence of people that we enjoy to be with, we find ourselves becoming more like those people. Some of you are aware with the writer uh, named Hawthorne and his uh, great uh, story of the great stone face and how the little boy so looked at the great image over the years of the mountain with the face on it that he began to take on those very features. And the desire of a person who glorifies God, he can know that he's enjoying God when he desires to be like God. And he likes what God likes, and he hates what God hates, and he learns God's moral laws, and he loves those laws, and seeks the grace of God to enable him to perform those laws. First John chapter 3 and verse 2 and 3 states, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. This text brings out that we are now the children or the sons of God. And we don't know exactly what we're going to be like. 
I can't explain to you what kind of bodies we're going to have. I don't know whether that I'll still have the scar on my thumb. I don't know if I should die right now. I'll look like I look right now throughout all eternity. I can't explain all those things, for I can't find them revealed in the Scriptures. But here is one thing which is revealed. We shall be like Jesus Christ, and when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What is he like? Every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself even as he is pure. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of a son of Adam fulfilling the will of God. He delighted in the holy will of God. He said, I delight to do thy will, O God. And the hope of the believer in the second coming of Christ is that when Christ comes, we shall be made like him. Never again to know a moment of disobedience or estrangement from the presence of the Father's face. To be able to love God fully and completely, unhindered in any fashion by remaining indwelling sin. So we cry out with John at the close of his book of Revelation, Even so come, Lord Jesus. Why do we want him to come so that we might be made like him, as he is pure, so we shall be pure. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What does it mean to enjoy God? It means to desire to be in his presence and to be like him, to live in his home, to live in his presence, that whatever he is and whatever reflects from him as to what is right and wrong, it is our desire to be like that if we're seeking to enjoy and glorify our God. First John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The apostle states, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Now, notice the word joy there. Here are some people that John wanted to enjoy themselves and to enjoy their relationship. But he did not say, I'm just writing to you, telling you what I've been doing. He did not say, I'm going to write you and tell you some humorous things which have happened in my life so that we can have fellowship on this basis. But he said, I'm writing you to instill in you a holy joy on the basis that we have fellowship with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the basis of Christian fellowship. It is not church fellowship. It is not social fellowship. It is the basis of individuals having a common bond in Christ Jesus so that when the word of God is expounded and opened unto us, that we have something mutual and in common. And if a person is here this morning who does not share in common with what I am sharing in, in Jesus Christ and fellowship with him, then we have no mutual ground. And you will hear words, but that will be all. You will see a speaker, but that will be all. If you have come for other motives, other than fellowshipping together in and around the Word of God, you will not partake of the fellowship that is in Christ Jesus today. And I make a, a, a doctrinal application here. As the Apostle states, 
that I write unto you that we may have fellowship together in Jesus Christ, then may I make this application. If we don't enjoy doctrinal sermons, it is simply because we don't enjoy the spiritual things of God. If a person must have sermons which have funny jokes, sad stories, and exciting experiences to thrill them, then those people are feasting on the things of this natural life. And you can get that on television, on radio, wherever you want to get it. But if you come to church and you've got to have that to enable you to feel like you've had something, my friend, you're feasting on the onions and the leeks and the garlics of a natural existence. And not from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. And if you do not enjoy the doctrinal teachings of the Scriptures of God, I say again, it's because you're not in fellowship with Jesus Christ and you're not enjoying the spiritual things of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of God. They're foolishness unto him. He has no hunger for them. He may swallow them in a given sermon, but as soon as he is outside the door, he'll regurgitate that like the dog and go somewhere else to find his natural appetite satisfied. Jesus Christ, if he were here this morning, how would he speak? And how would he uh, deal with the Scriptures? Well, let's go to the Bible and see how he spoke. See how he handled the Scriptures. Go with me to the book of Luke, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24, and beginning in verse 25. Then he said unto them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, how did Jesus Christ teach and preach? If he came in here today and I sat down and said with John the Baptist, you must increase, I must decrease, what would Jesus preach like? And would you enjoy it? Would you enjoy it? Now, you may find all sorts of problems and faults with my preaching, but there's one preacher you won't find fault with in the day of judgment, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Now then, here we have an example of what he did. He opened up the Scriptures. He began in a certain passage of Scripture, and he expounded out of those Scriptures all things concerning himself. Now, what was the response in the lives of these disciples? Go down in, um, uh, let's see, verse 32. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us along the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures? Hmm? Let me ask you a very pointed question this morning. Does your heart ever burn when the Scriptures are opened? Does your heart ever moved and thrilled with the truth of God as the Scriptures are opened? Or is it just so much dry bread? Hmm? Is it? Oh, beloved, that's a serious test as to whether or not we are enjoying God. May Christ open the Scriptures and expound the Scriptures. 
Never in my studies of the Bible, and I stand always to be corrected at any standpoint when there is Scripture to be brought, do I find Jesus Christ standing before a group and saying, Now then, this is what my Father taught me in eternity to get your attention. I'm going to tell a couple of Pollock jokes, and then I'll get the audience's attention. And then when they start to go to sleep, I'll stamp my foot. And that'll wake them up. And then when they get woke up, I'll tell them a sob story about a little puppy getting run over. And they'll start weeping. And then they'll leave and think they've really heard a sermon from the third heaven today. No, no, you don't find that in Jesus Christ. He said, I come to preach the Word of God. And if people have not hunger for that Word, I'll give them nothing more. And to those who had that hunger and they stayed after the assemblies when he would dismiss them, and they'd start walking up and they'd say, what did you mean by that, Master? I don't understand that parable. What did you mean? He would say, oh, you're one of those to whom it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The others have no interest. Let them go on their way. Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, you'll know no more about God than you have a hunger to know. And you'll enjoy God no more than you have a hunger to know about God. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they, and in the original, they and they only, shall be filled. Only those which hunger and thirst shall find a spiritual fulfillment or enjoyment in the things of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Charge them that are rich in the world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. In the providence of God, God sees fit to grant material blessings, not in equal measures to all people. Some people he grants much material blessings unto but he gives a warning unto those that they be careful that they not trust in those material riches, but in the living God who gives riches to enjoy. So it's possible for a person to have all kind of riches and not being enjoying uh, of God. So the warning is, charge them, young man, that are rich in this world, that they not be high and lifted up and trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God who gives richly to all people to enjoy those things. So again, in the balance of the Christian perspective, it is not sinful to have riches. God gives riches for people to enjoy. But be careful lest we begin loving those riches and forget about the glorifying of our God who gave us the riches. Now, can a person enjoy God in heaven if he does not glorify him here on this earth? That is a question which needs to be asked and dealt with. And different people answer it in different ways. And I believe the Bible to clearly teach that a man must make preparation in this life before he'll receive anything in the next life. That if a person does not enjoy the God of heaven and earth in this life, then he needn't to think that he will enjoy him in the life here to come. So the answer that we give to this question, 
Can a person expect to enjoy God in heaven if they do not glorify him here on earth? We give this answer. No rational person has a scriptural basis to expect happiness in heaven without holiness or godliness here on earth. You can't expect that scripturally. And if you don't want to be in God's presence now, don't think you'll somehow wake up in the morning of the resurrection and delight in it anymore. If a man cannot find it in his being to want to enjoy God here this morning, he has, I say carefully, no scriptural basis to expect that he shall ever enjoy God in the life hereafter. Hebrews 12:14 Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. God is holy and no man will stand in his holy presence who is not covered with his holiness and desiring to be there. That's why you've heard your pastor say for a length of time that if you took an unsaved person to heaven If he was there five minutes, he'd be finding a window to jump out of it. He'd be miserable in the presence of God. Because that God is a holy God. And he would be so out of place there that he would have no desire to be in the presence of God. And beloved, that disposition has to be established on this side of the grave. That disposition has to be given here now to where that we will bow and say, You alone are worthy, and I enjoy living in your presence and delighting in having your way with me. And I trust you, and I obey you through your grace. It is that disposition that can have a scriptural assurance that when that resurrection morning takes place or they are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, that they shall have an eternity to live and dwell with God forever. Now, do all individuals make the enjoyment of God their main pursuit? And the answer, which the Bible clearly reveals and human experience bears out, is no. Many people concentrate upon selfish pleasures rather than the glorifying and enjoying God. They concentrate on the minor end in which God has given them here in this world. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 says that they are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So that if a person goes through this life and they have no time to really delight in the things of God, they are called a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 states, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. If you were given a notice somehow by God or a medical doctor, that you had another five minutes to live, what would be your thoughts? What would be your thoughts? Would your thoughts just gravitate immediately, 
just a natural response, just like a doctor when you go into his office and he takes that little hammer and he hits you right below the knee and your knee kicks out. Would you have just a natural response? Oh, I got five minutes to live. Well, let's see. I better get this taken care of down at the bank. Oh, I hate to leave my family. Uh, I have to see that the cows are in the barn. Have to, uh, and then you, all of your mind starts gravitating back to the things of this life. Or would your immediate reflex start saying, five minutes and I'm going to be in the presence of God? Hmm? That'll tell you whether you're enjoying God or whether that you'd rather stay here in this world. Hmm? Beloved, I can say to you this morning that I love my family. I love my calling which God has given me. I love this world. But I'll leave it in a minute when God calls. And I'll not have any sorrow about it. David said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And David had a lot of people in heaven. But he said, I've only got one. That means everything unto me. If you had your choice this morning of God calling you on into your eternal reward or leaving you here, would you wrestle with God and say, Oh, wait a little longer, dear Jesus? Or would you say, even so come, Lord Jesus? It'll tell you how anchored you are to this life. And whether that when God cuts the strings, you'll be ready to fly up like the balloon. I remember when I was in Sacramento, California, about eight or nine years of age, my dad got me one of those helium-filled balloons. And my, I went through that state fair with that thing and just, just on top of the world. And all of a sudden, that thing got away. And I had to stand and watch it go completely way up in the sky and finally out of my sight. There went my whole life. And Brother Rick, that's what's going to happen one of these days. The trump of God's going to sound and my whole life's going to go up and nothing's going to be left behind. Everything I love and hold dear is in the hands of God. And we go where he goes. Whatsoever he leadeth, we go. We follow him. When he says, come, we follow. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth and covetousness, which is idolatry. God has given me, as I said, a wonderful family. He's given me a good job. He's given me a nice home to live in. And yet, when I began to covet those things and began to make them the chief reason for my existence and me just settling down here in this old world, I become guilty of idolatry. And I can make my family, my home, my job, anything, an idol. And John would say, my little children, keep yourself from idols. Beloved, the Bible portrays us as Christians as pilgrims passing through a world. Dwelling in tents, having no certain dwelling place, being given by God the lawful privilege to enjoy families and friends and occupations and all of these things in a lawful fashion. But let us be careful that we do not try to set our roots down in this world because God won't let you. He'll root you up and take you on over and plant you in some other area. Your tent stakes will be there for a while and then He'll... Move you here and there. Now, we can see that through our whole life. 
I see some youngsters here this morning. I see some as teenagers. I see some which are getting married. I see some which are ready to have children. I see some which are grandmothers. I see some in which you've lost your children. Some of you are not very far away from the natural law of being in the grave. And no doubt, a year from now, there will be somebody here in this congregation this morning that will never hear another sermon. That if God does not come in the person of Jesus Christ, some of you will, of us will be in the grave. Now, we're changing people. We change from infants to toddlers to children to youth, young married, grandmothers, grandfathers, and then the elderly. We can't stop that process. And we best be adjusting with it. And stop trying to anchor ourselves in saying, oh, if I was just young again. Oh, if I could just have this place here and just have peace of mind here. Beloved, that's not ordained of God. We cannot put our roots down anywhere. And when you start doing that, it's only going to hurt you more and more when the time comes in God's providence that he takes you out of one circumstance in life and puts you in another set of circumstances. Now, what application can we make of this teaching that we, if we are to glorify God, we must also enjoy him, and we can't enjoy him without glorifying him, giving him all the credit? The application is this, in closing, that it is the duty and wisdom of all persons to deny and forsake all inferior interests and enjoyments when they come in competition with the glory of God and our enjoyment of him. Luke 14.33, Jesus states, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Ever so often there are groups of Christians which come along and they want to add to the moral law of God and thus they establish a whole long list of taboos as to what you do and what you don't do. And then they end up, grow, they grow up and they learn all the do's and the don'ts. Let me give you a simple guideline as to know whether you ought to do something in a given circumstance or not. Is your participating in that activity in any way making you insensitive to the enjoyment of the things of God? I was asked by... A brother, I'm not going to call him my brother anymore after getting me to do that. Uh, brother Easton caught me the other night at the ball game, and I was asked to umpire a game which I thought was going to last two hours, and it went four hours and 15 minutes or so. And so uh, we have broken fellowship uh, uh, over that. <laughs> no, seriously. That was something there that I enjoyed doing. And I got some pleasure, some mental release out of it. I do thank you, Brother Bob, for asking. It was a big help, actually, in enabling some mental energies to get dissipated in some other areas. Now, I love to play ball, even though I'm past that playing stage. But listen, any time that I detect fishing, ball playing, camping... Anything that begins to hinder and cut the sharp edge off of my enjoyment of the things of God, it's time to begin to put a damper on it. It's time to deny it. As Paul said, I keep my body in subjection. 
I keep a discipline on it. And all of these lawful things, which all things are lawful unto me, he says, I don't participate in them all, lest I be brought under the power of them. God has given many things which are lawful for us to use, but those aren't the chief end of why we're here. And when we begin to settle down and major and enjoy these lawful things, Satan can come along and make those enjoyable, lawful things that we get so full of them, we begin to lose our appetite for the things of God. Then it's time to push yourself away from the table and say, no seconds. No seconds. I'll pass up the desserts today. I'll pass up that fishing trip because I detect that there's too much time being devoted to that and it's beginning to make my prayer life and my conscience with God to be insensitive. And therefore, it's time to say no in that given area. So you don't have to have your long list, a checklist, and get it out and say, now, wait a minute, is this right or is this wrong? What does this activity do in your relationship with God? Does it enable you to enjoy Him? Does it enable you to glorify Him? If so, then participate in the lawful moral activities which are revealed. But even if they're lawful, even if they're moral, if they began to make you insensitive to glorifying God and you don't enjoy your relationship with God the way you used to, it's time to stop and take inventory and see if you've been overeating, see if you've been overindulging in certain lawful practices. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask that today that you might bless your word we confess before you that the success of any given message comes from your word and not from the messenger. That while you have been pleased to use human instruments in proclaiming and declaring your truth, yet it is not those instruments which are efficacious in the success of the message, but it's your word. It is your word which you promised will not return unto you void. And so we acknowledge this and we confess that there are times when we stand to minister in which we feel so weak and helpless. And then we acknowledge there are times in which you give us great liberty and we enjoy flowing forth the words of God. And so we pray, O oh God, that in all things that you might take your word and might it be found steadfast, anchored in your very moral character. Give us the ability to glorify you, and in turn, may we benefit from enjoying the things which you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.